Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Viewer discretion is advised. When we set out to do the Route 29 Stalker podcast almost six months ago, we had no idea at the time what would happen, if anyone would listen, or if we'd get people to talk. Keep in mind, I do commercial video production for a living, and now I had an audio recorder in hand and was walking up to complete strangers, asking them if they knew who killed Alicia Showalter Reynolds back in 1996. Now, fast forward. We're getting calls and emails every day from people, listening and sharing their stories. I'm constantly reminded of why it's so important we are doing this. To keep these cases alive and talked about. But I have to be honest with you. If it wasn't for you listening and local community members calling in and offering to help, this story wouldn't be talked about at all. So thank you. Thank you for telling others and offering to help. I can't say I'm not still frustrated though. You all have followed my journey into looking into these cases. You've been with us every step of the way. Once I found something new or worth sharing, I'd put out an episode and you've been right there with us. Even in one episode, I played a few minutes of calling and getting the runaround on the phone. Then one person remembered Julianne and Lolly's names and gave me a sweet moment to share with you. But what I didn't put in was the days before, getting hung up on and being on hold for more than 30 minutes at a time, or even being told not to call again. I've tried to give you a glimpse into the process that I've been going through. At times, it's been frustrating. Others, you meet new lifelong friends and they push the story forward for you and keep it alive. I'm still left with so many questions though, and I know you have questions as well. And I wanted to take the time and address some of those and go back to ones we left unanswered and possibly lead us in a whole new direction. By now, you've heard what happened to Alicia Showalter Reynolds. Then, what could be even more Route 29 Stalker cases with Julianne and Lolly. We even have a suspect that could tie these cases together with Daryl David Rice. However, he has already served time for attempted kidnappings and is currently at home. 
So where does that leave us? Let's look back at some of the questions we asked. The day Alicia went missing, her credit card was found on Clay Street in the town of Culpeper. Then, her car was later found abandoned on the side of Route 29 later that evening. We really don't know anything else about this credit card, and anything I say at this point is speculation. We even went over this in the first episode of our thoughts and theories about it, but since then, we haven't been able to find anything else regarding it. I will say that the location of where Clay Street is does have me puzzled, and like my friend John said in episode 5, everything is relevant. Now, my investigation, my opinion would be gearing more towards this is not normal. You know, people don't throw their own credit cards out the window. People don't arbitrarily drop their car somewhere, leave it. Um, Now I'm starting to go from maybe this is best case scenario to maybe this potentially could be worst case scenario. So now we need to start changing our thoughts, changing our process and start changing our approach a little. What is the evidence telling you? You know, you started kind of maybe headed in this direction. The car maybe veered off in a different direction. If something happened to her and somebody else took the car, then what direction are they headed? What generality are they thinking? Are they now she was originally headed northbound. Now the car is headed southbound or southeast or something. So maybe we need to start taking our changing our approach, our look, our direction, our focus into a different geographical area. There could be certain bits of information that could come up and again some of it could come from eyewitness testimony from what they've told you tidbits of information or you could look at what the forensic evidence has to offer was there fingerprints found on the credit card could there be touch dna that's on there same thing for the jacket um same thing for the vehicle could there be fingerprints could there be dna that's left inside did they drink a drink did they smoke a cigarette any of those other things would leave you good possible evidence, forensic evidence, that could be used later to to link you to a suspect and probably to the conviction of court. In the days following Alicia's disappearance, witnesses came forward saying a man had been trying to stop women over on Route 29, and they saw Alicia get in the truck with this same man. And you remember the brave sisters that shared their stories with us? I want you to know that there were others that wanted to as well. However, they couldn't out of fear of the Route 29 stalker still being out there. My heart truly breaks for them. They still live in fear to this day because of what this man was doing back in 1996. One important detail came from those conversations though. It was the make and model along with the fact that it had 30-day tags on it. Now, first off, we called around to dealerships in the area that were there at the time. And honestly, no one wanted to talk to us. We tried and tried and even explained the podcast and explained what our goal was. And still, no one would even talk to us about the truck. Or if they sold the truck then, or if it was even in stock, or if it came from that area. So know that we explored this option, and quite frankly, we would just shut down. We did, however, 
reach out to one of our clients here in our hometown that's a car dealer to explain to us just how important the 30-day tags aspect of their story is and if it could help us. Actually, it's very interesting to hear about the 30-day tags being used in that case or scenario. And in thinking about that, the, the advantages could very well be several. Number one, it's very possible that if back in 1996, if you spotted a 30-day tag and ran the number, that the DMV wouldn't have the information on the file because back then everybody ran paperwork from stores to DMV and it would take 10, 15, 20 days just for DMV to get the paperwork and process it in order to put the 30-day tag number into their database. So that's one likely scenario is that it could have, he could have thought that it was an untraceable tag. The other thing is that a 30-day tag can be taken off of one car and put on another with relative ease without anybody thinking there's anything nefarious going on. Um, I have before in another store had a case where someone was taking the 30-day tags that we take off of cars when we put hard plates on. And normally what we do is we when a customer's hard plates come in, we take off the 30-day tag and we destroy them. We rip them and destroy them. Back then, uh, we had a case where a person was, instead of destroying them, he was keeping them. And you can wash the VIN off of the 30-day tag and he was selling them to his friends. So you can move a tag from one car to the other. It's almost like a dealer tag uh, where you can put on any car and uh, not really something that you would see that's out of the ordinary. So what very well could have been happening, and again, this is just an opinion, is he could have been periodically, every month, every two months, stealing a 30-day tag off a car in a parking lot, um, erasing the VIN, putting his number on it, and putting it on his truck. So he, in essence, would have a different tag every month. So it would be very tough to run a tag and, and connect it to him in any way. He would have different numbers. Uh, it would not have been that difficult back then to get 30-day tags, either by stealing them or it, he could have been an employee at a dealership or knew or worked at a dealership at some time and knew the inner workings of a store and how to get dealer tags. Goodness, he could have had 10 of them at his house for all we know. Uh, it's an interesting observation. Uh, but the fact is that 30-day tags work entirely different than hard tags. Hard tags are applied to a VIN number or a certain car and they cannot leave the car and the police can run them at any time, or they can run your VIN number and get tag numbers for that car. They're permanently attached, whereas a 30-day tag gets assigned temporarily to a car that's purchased only for a number of days. 
other than that, I, I'm, you know, it, it is an interesting scenario. I'm not sure um, why else the use of 30-day tags would come up in that story. Um, but I, I would, you know, I don't, and I don't, again, I don't know enough about the claims, but it would be interesting in hindsight if you knew that at some point he worked at a dealership or at a roadside car sale place where he had access to 30-day tags, or at one point he did work there where he knew how the process went and that he could gain access to them easily. Back then, anyone who sold cars and did tag work for their customers, generally speaking, was assigned 30-day tags. Uh, I can speak more from a dealership standpoint since I've never worked at a roadside used car facility, but uh, for a dealership, we would have boxes of 30-day tags, and they were all uh, in numerical sequence. They were all assigned to us, but um, we would have boxes in our finance office, and when you came and bought a car, we would pull the next set of tags out, assign it to your car, and give you a set of 30-day tags. Um, then we would put the paperwork together for the deal and send that to the DMV, telling them that we subscribe these tags to you. That being the case, uh, we did regular audits on 30-day tags so that we knew we weren't missing them, but I would suspect that there were places uh, where they didn't do audits or where he could maybe cover up an audit that would be easy to get tags. Even in a place like a dealership where I worked, where they had general audits, they usually did them once a month or once a quarter, and if you knew when they did them and took a series of tags out after that, it would be months until they knew that they were, dis that they were gone. Even so, the only thing they would do is an internal audit and then uh, supply DMV with the stolen tags and they would get probably buried from there. And you hear this stuff all the time. So yeah, uh, it's very easy to gain access to 30-day tags, frankly. Not anymore, they've changed the process, but back then, uh, it was easy to, to get them. Even so, like I said, we, we had a guy who, when a customer came in for his hard tags, instead of taking off the 30-day tags and destroying them, he took them off and kept them. So there are a number of ways to get them if you don't want to just steal them out of parking lots. Do either of the suspects in the case ever have any background with a sales department of a dealership or a roadside used car place? And just like you and I would make up um, passwords for websites based on things we know, whether it's you know children's names or street signs, the Larry Breeden had to come from somewhere. It's interesting if you could tie that name to an auto shop, uh, may have been a friend of his or an acquaintance of his, that he just stumbled upon access to the tags. Very interesting. And remember, during this time, over 10,000 leads came in. Then that May, somebody found Alicia's body in a place called Lignum. 
by seeing buzzards flying overhead. We even visited this site with a new friend we made from this podcast. Into April, May? Yeah, so he said three weeks into into turkey hunting, or a couple weeks into turkey hunting. It was him, his son, and his grandson out here. And he made it very clear that it was it was a warm year, so he was, while they were walking around in t-shirts, turkey hunting. And uh, so he, he said, the wind blows from the west all the time. So he would have known if there would have been a body down there. They would have smelled it, you know. So they didn't see nothing. So I guess he said it had to have been, the body had to have been dumped after Saturday evening. And then they found her Monday? Was it the call came in from the... From either the UPS or a FedEx driver, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. And so... What was he saying? He said it was strange that she went missing so early and it had been so warm. So the body had to have been stashed somewhere before it came out here. Yeah. Yeah, because she couldn't have. So from what he was saying, he doesn't believe that there's no way that she could have been out here for two months. Correct. Because because of the weather, hunting, they were out here hunting the, the day before. And then the body was found on Monday, so it probably was placed on Sunday because of the weather. There's just no way. There's right. no way it could have been out here for two months and people hunting and never right. found it since and, March. And that's turkey hunting, too. You, it's not like deer hunting. You don't just sit in one spot and wait for them to come to you. You call, you chase them, you know. So he said he was, he was all up and down these woods right here so he said he would have seen something smelled something and so it was no stone it was just all mud and buck Um, so he said he found it odd that there was no tire tracks um, you know no evidence that they picked up Um, and he thought it was very strange because um, his son got interviewed and a couple other people got interviewed from their hunt club, but he never got interviewed, so he thought that was pretty odd. But um, And he said he, it was has always puzzled him that a UPS driver would stop and notice buzzards flying around and take the time to call call it in to have it checked into because like like I said who would do that out here but who exactly saw the buzzards does it help us to know and do they have any importance to our story at all and how long had she actually been out there Hi, my name is Lauren Farr Park, and I study sculptures for a profession, and I did my dissertation research um, at LSU 
studying vulture scavenging behavior, and during that time period, I spent a year at the Texas State Forensic Anthropology Research Facility studying vulture scavenging behavior as part of my doctoral program, and I have been studying vultures ever since. But while I was in Texas, I developed a list of traits that can be used to recognize vulture scavenging and how those traits can help narrow down the timeline for when vultures have been in their crime scene. I am guessing that what the call was about was probably the, the bird either leaving their roost in the morning, so a couple hours after um, sunrise, or they were returning to their roost um, a few hours before sunrise, and it's like, it's a spectacle, because they will all um, gather, and they will just start circling above, or they're going to sleep, and it's very, um, it's very noticeable, but that, I'm thinking that is what resulted in the phone call. Um, but there are a couple, um, there, there would have been, a, I think, a lot of birds there for someone to call in. So I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to think here um, what your possible scenarios are. So one scenario, so you have, you have birds there um, year-round, and they are going to, vultures, they're attracted to fresh decay. They will arrive within five days following death unless there's something um, that is going to disrupt that, such as um, like a hurricane, which you don't have, but just torrential weather that is going to prevent them from getting to the food source, or if there is something wrong with the food source. Um, sometimes they won't scavenge if the animal is sick, or there's been some sort of drug to hinder decomposition. So, it, um, but the likelihood of happening is probably very, very slim. So, um, being in Virginia, the birds would have come within five days following death, and they were gathered until there's no more food, and they scattered very quickly. So, uh, so your scenario, one scenario is that um, the decedent was not placed in that area until um, days before she was found. Five days is a long time, more like two or three days is what they'll go away. So she may have been placed within May 5th. Um, and then whoever was there, they saw the, the vultures circling. The problem with that theory is that vultures, they usually don't circle that much before they go down to eat. They're usually going to, like, if they're going to perch in a tree, you'll have one or two that, that will circle. But, um, you know, these animals are... They're fighting for a food source, so they're not going to advertise to every scavenger out there, hey, there's some food. So the one problem again with her being placed out there in May is that I don't see the birds, you know, that many birds circling. I think what we're seeing is that the birds were returning to their roost. They, the police think that she passed away from... On or around the time that she was missing, leads me to believe that they found a skeleton um, in the woods, which means that the vultures would have removed any um, putrid tissues. So that I don't think she was smelling. They found a skeleton, and the vultures, I'm going to guess the vultures came in soon after death and removed. I know that based on studies from Texas, they could consume a human, and by that I mean from a fully fleshed human down to a skeleton in five hours. Um, they usually arrive 
leave us exactly are we any closer to knowing who the route 29 stalker was or is for all accounts our main suspect daryl rice has served his time for the crimes he was found guilty of and is now home and with no evidence physically tying him to it we have to set him aside for now so were there any other suspects in this case well, actually, there was one name that kept coming up while we were researching this case. A name I kept setting aside in the beginning, but somehow couldn't forget. A name that if you don't know it already, you won't be able to forget it after hearing what he did. This guy was pure evil. And in my opinion was a strong candidate to be Alicia's killer. Abduction and murder reared its ugly head to the community of Spotsylvania County on September 9th, 1996, seven months after the disappearance of Alicia Showalter Reynolds. 16-year-old Sophia Silva was last seen on her front porch doing her homework at her family's home soon after arriving home from school. Silva was taken quietly and without apparent struggle. 
Her older sister was actually inside the home during the abduction, but was unaware of her sister's situation. Despite the best efforts of police, Silva seemed to vanish into thin air and was found dead in a marsh six weeks later and 20 miles away. She was wrapped in a white cover and her pubic hair had been shaved off. Police were at a loss in the Silva case. Then, two sisters, Kristen Lisk, 15, and Katie Lisk, 12, disappeared after getting off the school bus on May 1, 1997, in Fredericksburg. Their father came home from work sometime later to find no sign of his daughters, except Kristen's book bag laying discarded in the front yard. The two sisters were found dead five days later in a river over 40 miles away from their home. Like Silva, their killer had shaved their pubic areas at some point during their forced confinement. It was obvious the two cases were from the same killer. All three girls had been abducted at their homes after school and without any struggle. Their pubic hair shaved off by the killer. All had been strangled or suffocated, and all were dumped in water. When DNA samples from both crimes matched, it brought authorities no closer to solving the mystery, and after a few years passed, it seemed likely that the Spotsylvania killer would never be caught. Then, a 38-year-old man named Richard Mark Evanets abducted a 15-year-old girl on June 24, 2002 in Columbia, South Carolina. After raping and holding her hostage in his apartment for 18 hours, he dozed off allowing the girl to work herself free and escape. Police responding to her report found the apartment empty, but Evanets was eventually tracked down in Sarasota, Florida two days later and shot himself in the head before he could be arrested. During a subsequent search of Richard Mark Evanets' apartment, it showed that he was no first-time offender. A locker was opened and found to contain what seemed to be items that could be considered trophies. Among the things found were newspaper articles about the Lisk Silver murders, and it was soon discovered that Evanets lived in the area of the abductions at the time and had a criminal record from an earlier arrest for masturbating in public in the presence of a young girl. In late August, forensic tests confirmed the obvious that Evanets had stalked and murdered Silva and the Lisk sisters. Fibers from items in Evanetz's apartment matched many of those found on the three girls' bodies. Kristen Lisk's handprint was lifted from inside of Evanetz's car trunk and DNA samples were a match. Also found at that locker, handwritten notes that mentioned 29 North, taking a right onto 663 and crossing a highway beginning with the letter G. Police found Showalter's remains near Lignum, a hamlet 15 miles from where she was last seen. Lignum is near Route 3, also called Germana Highway, directions that seem to lead to the site of where Alicia's body was found. Did you catch that last part? That note mentioned 29 North, then right onto 663 and crossing a highway beginning with the letter G. Lignum is near Route 3, also called Germana Highway. 
and through a simple Google Maps search, he only lived 25 minutes or so from Lignum, and it was a straight drive to it, and only 40 minutes from Culpepper. Also, guess what was on his way to Lignum? Breeden's Auto Repair. And early in his life, he actually worked as a mechanic at a Jiffy Lube. And in his final moments on the phone with his sister, before taking his life, he told her that he had killed someone and committed countless other crimes. However, he didn't identify who or say when he supposedly killed that person. He told her he had done so many things he couldn't remember them all. And on top of that, the DNA test by the FBI that eventually excluded Rice from Julianne and Lolly's murders, those same tests did not rule out Evenette's. One thing to point out, though, is that he doesn't look like the sketch at all. Is he our guy? Or even worse, was there more than one Route 29 stalker targeting women then? I'm Woody Graham Watts, host of the Route 29 Stalker podcast. As we began to dive deeper into the cold cases that happened along Route 29 over 20 years ago, we discovered something. That Route 29 isn't the only place with dark secrets. So we're bringing you a new series with longer, more in-depth stories featuring new cases every episode. There are too many families without a voice that need closure. We will be their voice. Subscribe today to Why So Cold and help us keep these cases alive.